my recommendation is fall in love with the process, not the product. Because then you can truly be in a, a career entrepreneur. If you fall in love with the product, then you, if that business doesn't work, for whatever reason, the go-to-market, the product didn't mix, you won't want to do it again. you know. But And it won't be fun because you're going to have some hard times and you're going to associate that to the... And it's being able to be critical about the process and critical about the business that you're in. And so that's kind of the idea is fall in love and be passionate about the process of building companies and the way in which you can build them in a way that you don't need to maintain it at some point in the future and have that as your end goal. And then everything else will fall into place. Welcome. I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. The theme of last episode was the lessons that we can learn from leaders in higher education. And we heard from Deborah Spar, former president of Barnard, and Roger Brown, former president of Berkeley College of Music. Today, it's another themed episode. We had many entrepreneurs come through the podcast, so the theme of today are the lessons in entrepreneurship. We'll cover topics like how and when do you want to take the jump, what is important at the beginning, and how do you think about finding the right partners. We will hear from four people. Aliza Cohn from episode 12, Jackie Hermes from episode 24, then Hoarder, a very recent guest from episode 102, and Sean Fahey from episode 54. We start with Aliza Cohn. Aliza was in the top startup coach in the world at the Thinkers 50 Marshall Goldsmith Global Coaches Awards. Here, she talks about how she took the jump and became an entrepreneur herself when she started the coaching business. She shares how authenticity plays in her work and how some of the CEOs that she works with tap into it to find their leadership style. In your journey from working in the corporate world to going out on your own, for our listeners who may be considering a similar move, what were some of the key steps that you had to take to convince yourself that this was the right path for you? You have to be able to recognize, or I'll speak for myself, like I had to recognize I will be okay. And that's something that I talk to my clients about all the time. Like you have to have an inner experience of I will be okay no matter what, which means I can take care of myself. I can figure out if things don't work out, I can figure out how to make them work. So really it starts with that. And then I think it takes a lot of the sort of courage to go off the beaten path. Well, you know, the corporate world is kind of the beaten path. It's a well-trod path to carve out your own road, especially as a solopreneur, especially as a coach. You have to decide that you're willing to kind of step off the beaten path and then try and experiment. That takes an amount of maybe courage and preparing your mind to do that. I recommend that everybody have some financial cushion before they do that. And I had a little bit of financial cushion, which was helpful. Also, you know, I wasn't married. I didn't have kids, right? So I didn't have a major expense I had to handle. And then I think for me, it was just figuring out what are the things I need to do to become a coach? So as I broke it down into like, I need to learn the craft. So I began to, you know, I took coach training and I really learned and practiced the craft of coaching. I realized I needed mentorship. So I hired my own coach and, you know, that kind of got me like sort of down the path of like, how do you set up a business? And then I had to learn the business of coaching. So like, how do I handle contracts and how do I handle kind of policies and how do I set up a company? So 
I think breaking things down is very helpful. And I found breaking things down in those ways helped me take steps forward, which ultimately created the flywheel, which I have now. Thank you. That's great. Let's talk a little bit about the inner journey now. Generally, people who coach for as long and as successfully as you have tend to have a sense of mission, and they also tend to have a very good understanding and sense of who they are. So I'm curious, what is your definition of authenticity, and what are some of the moments when you started to figure out what was your authenticity and how you wanted it to show up in the work that you do? Well, I think it's interesting you ask about authenticity. I think authenticity is like a double-sided coin. I think people think of authenticity as like, let it all hang out and just be me. And I'll just, I'll take a little detour to say that when I coach CEOs, either startup founders or large company CEOs, actually letting it all hang out is not the right answer. Actually, you have to play a role and that role is called CEO. And so you need to find your style, your style of playing that role. So it's an amalgam of like who you actually are and your authenticity, plus the mantle of the role, the expectations of the role, and understanding that there is, you know, sort of a a lot of people around you looking to you to guide them. So that's about authenticity in the corporate world. I think for me, it goes back to that phrase I was talking about to make a difference. So when in my inner journey, and there were plenty of hard times and sort of starting up my business and oh, like for the first few years, I feel like I didn't draw a calm breath. I kept coming back to my own purpose. Like, why am I doing this? I'm doing this to make a difference. In any given day, in any given week, even though like, oh, I'm nervous or I don't know what's going on, what am I doing? I would still have these moments of making a difference for somebody. And that was very meaningful for me and gave me fuel to move forward. And so when I think about authenticity, it's about being able to have your purpose inside of you and letting that steer you as a North Star. And I also think about letting your humanity out. Like we all have certain personalities and certain quirks and certain, you know, interesting ways around the edges that we show up. And I think showing up in those ways lets out your authenticity. Well, something you said really resonates with me, which is the idea that people confuse the term authenticity. Yeah. You know, authenticity means to be your true self, but there's a difference between showing your whole true self and understanding which part of your true self is appropriate to show up. At the same time, if you're a leader or a CEO, and there's a point where people can see that what's showing up is not true, that will impact their leadership. So I'm interested, given that you work with a lot of CEOs, what are some of the ways that you help them show up their true selves in their work with their teams, maybe open up more in places and making difficult choices in other moments? Yeah, it's a big question. It's a meaty question. I think first and foremost, I really help the CEOs I work with align with and connect to their values and their purpose. Because inside, you know, above and beyond all the corporate stuff and all the business stuff and the things we have to do, the CEOs I work with, and I feel like all leaders and I think all people have something inside of them that shows them their North Star. It gets lost in the muck and mire of every day. And I help them strip that back and just identify for themselves what's my core purpose and what are my core values. Which means that when they're doing anything, it's in service of that. So I then ask them to pause before high stakes meetings or all hands or you know other kinds of interactions quick pause and remind themselves using a phrase, using a word, something of 
that purpose or of their values or what they're trying to get done. It's like helpful to have a, a phrase that they can really remember and bringing that into interactions, meetings, you know, communication, and even kind of what they do. So I think that's like one tool that I use that I think is very helpful for them. The other thing I want to say is that CEOs can sometimes show up as fake. And so can all of us. Part of that, I give people a lot of credit and a lot of room for that. Because all of us, when we are learning new skills, we kind of show up fake, right? We're over, we're overcorrecting, we're over-exaggerating, and we're learning. So we don't do it so well all the time. So I really think that to do a skill well, you first have to do it badly and give yourself permission to do it badly. And first of all, anyone who's listening, I would encourage you to think about the skills that you've learned that you started off kind of badly and then you got better at. And so... CEOs also have to go through that learning journey of the things that they are building inside their repertoire. Next up is Jackie Hermes. Jackie tackled the question of whether entrepreneurship is a vocation and when do you know that you're an entrepreneur? And her answers may actually surprise you. She also told us about some of the early things that you should be thinking about when you're starting your own venture. You mentioned you tried two or three paths. First of all, what led to the drive of being an entrepreneur? Have you always been interested? Tell me a little bit about that. I think a lot of entrepreneurs are like, oh, I knew I was going to be an entrepreneur since the day I was born. And I always sold things. And I, I guess that was not my dream. Looking back, I can see that I always had a lot of those tendencies. Like I've always been really strong-willed. And I always wanted to do things a different way. And whatever the path was that people provided to me is like, you know, the opposite of what I was going to do. So I had those tendencies, but I did not dream of being an entrepreneur. It was actually my ex-husband, who is the dad of two of my babies, who still, I mean, we have a good relationship. He's remarried, I'm remarried, all that jazz. He's the one that turned me on to entrepreneurship. So he had always, he's like that person that had always dreamed of being an entrepreneur. And when I started learning about it, I was like, hmm, it kind of seems like it could be a fit for me. So I left my job and thankfully had him kind of supporting me through the beginning of that. And off we went. But that's where the idea came from. I grew up in a family that I'm the first person in my family that went to college. And they all were very much like, you have to go to college to get ahead in life. And to make money, you have to get a really good career. You have to stay there. You have to climb the ladder. Education stability was what was kind of ingrained in me. And you know, the entrepreneurial life is the opposite of stable. So I don't think everyone was super pumped when I decided to go that route, but thankfully it has panned out for me. <laughs> That's great. And it's interesting you bring up your family because a lot of the times it takes a while to break away from the expectations that people have for you. Tell me a little bit about how that process worked for you when you realized that maybe it was okay if you were going to turn out what your parents or friends expected and and how you went about that? I don't know that I was really following their expectations through a lot of my life. Again, I was always kind of carving my own path. So I was surprised that they were surprised when I decided to do my own thing. But also, if my kids came to me when they were like, 23 years old and had a baby at home and we're like, I'm going to start a cookie company, I would probably be like, "Mm, is that a good call? You know, and so I think that they had 
they were hesitant on my behalf. And I think that they were right to do so. And also, I was building it on the side, I was keeping my full time job, you know, so I did it in a safer way. But that's not to say that everyone was like, super excited when I started. And then by the time I started the second company, the agency that I'm running right now, they were like, Oh, okay, you know, whatever. I don't know that quitting my full time job was again, the most exciting thing for my parents specifically. But they supported me through it. And I think they're really happy that I found a path that I'm passionate about. Yeah. And you talk a lot about it in your wonderful podcast, The Art of Entrepreneurship, where you're giving tidbits. So I don't want to give all the tidbits away because I want people to go and listen to it. But what are some of the key lessons that you learned along the way? Well, there's no way to give away all the tidbits. My brain is full of all the million mistakes I've made and lessons that I've learned. But I would say some of the main things that I've learned, one, I have always had a tendency to hire quickly to meet a need and then fire slow. And they say, hire slow, fire fast. Well, that saying is very true. Who you hire, how you hire, those things are very important. Focusing on being a good leader and how you retain your people, also very important. So those are all things that I've kind of learned over time. I think I had managed maybe two people before I started this company. So it's not like I had the playbook in front of me of like how to manage people. So that has been a big lesson. Another one is the need to focus constantly on sales. And when you are especially a solopreneur or just getting started, if you're not comfortable in sales or that's not your background, you have to learn. Otherwise, it's very difficult to get a company off the ground. And often, we have to sell before we really even have something to sell and start having those conversations. And that is, that's a huge lesson too. My company definitely started growing faster when I finally took the leap and hired a head of sales who, I mean, that's what he does all day, every day. And he's really dang good at it. Whereas I was more of a farmer and less of a hunter. So I like I was working the relationships and I kept in touch with people, but I wasn't out there really selling like he does. A really important factor in the success of a venture is who are you taking on the journey with you? In the next segment, Dan Horder talks about what can happen when you are too quick about finding your partner and then told us about some of the steps that you can take maybe to protect yourself at the beginning. You started a company, company was pretty successful, grew up to 45 employees, and then you ended up leaving and then coming back. Wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing the story behind what was the driver of leaving and then what was the driver of coming back? Yeah, I left because I was learning the hard way a rule, a law of entrepreneurship. When you partner with someone, I took it very lightly at the beginning. I didn't understand that when you partner with someone, especially in business, especially when equity is involved, it's essentially like getting married. And if you have to leave that partnership, it's stressful. And so my partner at the time, the gentleman that I co-founded the company with, was operating the business in a way I didn't agree with and making decisions that I didn't agree with. But I had very little equity compared to him. He was an 80% owner. I was a 20% owner. And so anytime that we would have the challenging conversations of, hey, I don't agree with this or I don't agree with that, oftentimes they would end in, well, I'm 80%. So we're doing it this way. And eventually, this was happening for a while before I left. And 
it was very hard for me to leave because I put my blood, sweat, and tears into the company. I cashed in my 401k from that software job. I went all in. There was no other option for me. And I didn't see a way out, but I loved the company so much that it was very hard for me to leave. But it eventually got to a point where if I stayed, I thought I was risking my reputation. And if I stayed, it would be seen as condoning some uh, unagreeable behavior. And I had to make the hard decision to leave. I remember I pulled some employees that were very close to me aside and I told them of the decision and I didn't want them to hear it from anyone else. And so it was uh, choking up a little bit now. It's been four years, but it was a very, very tough decision for me. It was very tough to walk away because I always thought like, maybe something could change. Maybe we could get big enough and, and, you know, something would change. Maybe something would crack open and it just, nothing was changing and it couldn't change. And so I had to make a change. So I left. Before we go to the next phase, actually, you said something that is really important, which I think will be very helpful to our listeners. So you mentioned that you got into this partnership, you were super enthusiastic, and maybe you overlooked a number of things. So if you had to give advice to somebody who, just like you, gets very passionate about a product or an industry, and they really want to be part of it, they have an opportunity to go in with a partner, what are some of the key steps that you take now before you enter the partnership? What's the rush, right? There's so many vehicles for partnerships that allow you to slowly step into it. And so vesting is a common term that people understand, but putting guardrails on a partnership, I think is really important. And understanding really who that person is at their core, not so I was young and my mistake, and I've done it more than once is I mistaked confidence for competence. And those weren't the same thing. And I thought just because they had this bravado to them and they had this almost magnetism to them, they could really lead a crowd and, and, and things like that must mean that they're good in every area of their life. And what I would do now is I would slow down, slow down and really understand who that person is, almost interview them if you can in a way or over time of like, what are their core values? What's important to them? And then be around it enough to see, is that true? Is that, are those words or is that true? Because if you're around someone enough and if they're put in stressful situations, who they really are is going to come out. And for me personally, what I would do now is introduce them to my fiance because when she met this gentleman, she knew right away. <laughs> like, she told me that day that something that I didn't see for another year and a half, she was like, be careful with this guy. She saw it right away. And so uh, if you have someone that's more perceptive than you around you, introduce them, take them out and see. But I would, I would sl slowly walk into partnerships. And then on the other side, if you're offering a partnership to someone, put some guardrails in. Say like, hey, I think this is going to be awesome. Uh, I think this is what you're capable of. Let's work together for a while and say like... You know, uh, if we hit these milestones or if we last this long, there's different ways of saying this is the equity I want to give you, but we need to get here first together before I'm willing to, to let those those doors open. And so um, there's a lot of different ways. And uh, there's probably someone that you know that's dealt with equity in some way, shape or form. Talk to them. 
go over, have a conversation with them because on the other side of that, you know, I've made more mistakes and I've had to learn the hard way a lot of times about partnerships and it's not fun. I would much rather have done it the right way up front and really understood my own value to the company. Um, cause I thought the path that I was getting equity at all was awesome. And then all of a sudden I'm doing 90% of the work for 20% of the company. That's actually a common mistake that, that founder that come into situations with that passion go. They found somebody that, you know, as you said, has a lot of confidence. They feel that that's going to be their opportunity to explode. Then they give too much control and they found themselves that they've given up too much value. So how did you come back? When I left, I started another company. I stayed in the industry, but I knew I wanted to be fully removed. So I actually took eight months of negotiation to sell my equity back to the company. I ended up selling for literal pennies on the dollar of what it was worth because they were trying to tie me up into a non-compete. Non-competes normally don't stand up unless, this is important for your listeners, unless it's tied to a sale of equity then non-competes stand up. And I knew that. And I knew if I had a non-compete, again, I got started at the very beginning of the industry at a young age. And so at the time when I was leaving, I was 28 or 29. And I was a dinosaur in the industry at 28 or 29. And so I realized the value of that. And if I kept going on that path, how much more valuable that that could become. And I just, it wasn't worth it to me to sit out of the industry for a couple of years while it was growing so quickly and changing so fast. So I took a bet on myself. I sold it for pennies on the dollar and started a hemp and distribution company for a couple of years, actually working with all of what would have been seen as our competitors, but distributing for them. And so understanding what was working for them, we built a website called directhemp.com, which we were trying to make kind of the bodybuilding.com of the hemp and CBD world. And so we had all of these awesome brands next to each other in the same marketplace. And so I got to see firsthand these brands up against each other, what was selling, what was moving the customer, what price point affected, all of these things. I was getting all of this data and insight in the industry. And so we were very successful with that model out of the gate. But I also learned my style of entrepreneurship. I wasn't fulfilled again. I had that same feeling I had in the corporate world of like, I was just working for somebody else. I was just working a job and I didn't have control of the product or anything there. The theme of structuring properly your co-founder relationship had come up before. And unlike Dan, Sean Fay had actually found the mechanism that worked really well for him and his co-founder. So in this segment, we are going to hear about how Sean went ahead about structuring um, his agreement with the people that he started the business with. It sounds like your four co-founders are all have all been successful as a choice for you. What are some of the steps that you took that you felt really created the conditions for this partners to come on board and that be a successful partnership? It's too hard to tell if someone's going to be good long-term within three coffee dates, you know, or whatever you have. It's impossible to predict. So, you know, this share trade for work concept is what I recommend to everyone. And if you have pushback from someone else who wants to be 50-50, whatever, I would just tell them, put yourself in that same situation. So in this fictional scenario that we have, the company has 100 shares. 98 of those shares are owned by the company and no actual owner. We each own one share. 
And every hour that we work, we will own one more share. Which, you know, those numbers don't actually make sense. But, you know, every thousand hours we work, we'll own one more share. And if you are willing to go all the way the distance as the founder yourself, then you have no concern that you're not going to get your 50, 60, 70, whatever percent of shares that you want. If your co-founder decides to leave tomorrow morning, he owns one share, less than 1% or 1% of the business. And you're both equally working to earn the percentage of shares that the business represents. That's basically what VCs do when they do vesting schedules for their own founder shares sometimes. Just do it at the beginning with yourself, with the partners, because you don't know if that guy's going to get a job at Google tomorrow morning and then leave you with a half code base. And then you have 50% ownership in a company or whatever it is that you can't get back. He or she doesn't want to sign it over. And then you're stuck in the business dies. So you, you're not going to win. You put yourself at basically equally from the beginning in terms of earning the shares. Maybe you have like a slightly higher compensation in terms of the share that you earn, but you started at the same level as your partners. That exact scenario did not play out exactly like that in our case. Uh, one of our founders, we did do the 50-50 thing and then he did leave. However, he was nice enough to give back most of his shares to be able to give to another CTO that we come back. That rarely happens. That gentleman was a friend of mine and we were partners in previous businesses and understood the value of what we were discussing and gave back the shares. But I, if someone would have told me, no, don't do it that way. Give yourself either one, each 1% each quarter that you work. And if he leaves, then you're not stuck with that problem. And if you leave, they have to find another CEO or whatever so that you're not in a position where the business dies because someone left. Just don't set it up to fail, right? This way you can't fail. So in whatever the vesting schedule is, people will negotiate based on the workload, the contribution, who started, when did they start? You know, like those were all changes. But the other 10 or 15 people that helped found BidCruder, some of them still own shares today. One of them owns like 0.0001% of the company. He worked for us for two months. He was a coder that helped and then went to Germany and did something else. You know, like it doesn't matter. It's not... But it's not substantial to the business. It didn't hurt the business anyway. He did help. He didn't get paid cash. Now he has those shares. Now they're worth a lot more than what he, you know, so it, everyone wins. There's no losers in that scenario. The goal is to have a win-win outcome. And so the only way to do that is that everyone has realistic expectations about what the business is worth and where it is. And 50 of nothing is nothing. So what's the difference if I own 50% or 1%? It shouldn't make a difference. And we're going to close the episode still with Sean, a very interesting portion of the conversation when he talks about what he thinks it takes to be a successful entrepreneur. And most importantly, how do you know if what you want to be is a career entrepreneur? One of the things that entrepreneurs need that you need to probably do a test for, and uh, Martin Seligman wrote a bunch of books, one of them called Authentic Happiness and Learned Optimism. And that school, I think it's Penn, has a personality test. And you can do a test on how happy you are, how optimistic you are, and all these kinds of things. And there's one about grit and persistence. And I think that the entrepreneurs that I've met who are the most successful have a lot of persistence. And if you want to be an entrepreneur, you would, I would recommend go do the grit test. Go find out how persistent you are and go scale yourself against other people. I did the test. I'm literally one of the most persistent and People in the world are like the most gritty. I don't know if that's the word, but I have one, one of the highest grit scores of it in the scale against th tens of thousands of other people. And then if the, you want to be an entrepreneur, then work on that skill set to have a higher grit tolerance. And you will then, your personality will adapt to the type of personality that you need to be to become 
this kind of entrepreneur because you know it's just kind of a thing that happens all the time you need that skill set so when if you don't have it you can develop it it's not like you these are things that people can do yeah it's you pen uh, they have the tests online that you could go to so that's like a good spot check. Like, hey, I want to be an entrepreneur. Okay, well, you need these personality traits. Do you have them? No. Okay, well, then do that first. Because if you don't have that, you're going to fail because there's a formula. That's great. I wanted to ask you, you have mentioned e- even earlier that, you know, my hobby is VidCruiter. I think that the type of commitment and effort that you're putting in there does not happen without also a passion and a certain amount of happiness. So w- w- so what is exciting to you about your you know, being an entrepreneur and recruiter. Oftentimes, I hear people be excited about the product that they're selling. And I think they missed the mark. Uh, you know, before this, I was selling belt buckles. And people said, oh, you must have loved belt buckles. I said, no, I just love belt buckle margins. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't because, you know, I, I was a big belt guy. I have three belts right now. You know, it's I fell in love with process and the process of building the business and the process of improving the business. And the book that I read that opened my eyes to this concept was a book called E-Myth, which is the entrepreneur myth. And so that concept is what got me excited. And the concept of opening and running a business and seeing that as a challenge to succumb. And so whether it doesn't matter whether you're selling you know, telephones or computer screens or coffee mugs, it's like... The challenge of operating that business in a way that it's efficient. And one of the things that the Rich Dad Poor Dad book said in the E-Myth book said is if you cannot leave your business for two or three months and come back and it is bigger than and still running smoothly without you being there, then you have not built a real business. You have built yourself a job. So good for you. You may have a good income, but that's not a real business that runs and operates on its own. You know, then they use the analogy of McDonald's. McDonald's, one location does like $1.5 million a year, $2 million. A year. I don't remember the exact numbers, but how many restaurants do $1.5 million a year that are run by high school kids? Not too many, but they have so many processes in place that that runs smoothly, that operation, without even needing veteran restauranteurs running the operation of making that business churn out that revenue. So my recommendation is fall in love with the process, not the product. Because then you can truly be you know, a career entrepreneur. If you fall in love with the product, then you, if that business doesn't work, for whatever reason, the go-to-market, the product didn't mix, you know, the belt buckles are no longer popular, you won't want to do it again you know but and it won't be fun because you're going to have some hard times and you're going to associate that to the and it's being able to be critical about the process and critical about the business that you're in you know one of the things i was reading warren buffett's autobiography at the time and he said retail is one of the worst businesses to be in and i was like ah oh, okay well i need to get out of this business and i wasn't attached to that as much that business was a school project i did that while i was going to school in florida you know so it didn't matter and so that's kind of the idea is fall in love and be passionate about the process of building companies and the way in which you can build them in a way that you don't need to maintain it at some point in the future and have that as your end goal. And then everything else will fall into place. Thank you for listening. Obviously, if you have not listened to the full interviews by these four wonderful people, uh, go back to the archive and, and, and check all the episodes out. 
As usual, if you love this episode, find somebody that you think may be interested in it and tell them to listen to it. And if you like the show, tell your friends and post on social media about it. Every little bit helps. Make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts, Audible, Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating and a review. Five stars all the way. Stick around because after the credits, I'm going to play a song by Susan Catane, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. For more information and all the links, go to the website al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. Make sure you follow the podcast on all the social platforms where you are present or where you look for your information. On Twitter and Instagram, the handle is at al4edp with the letter D. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, here's a song by Susan Cattaneo. We're going to keep it light and fun. The song is called Shave. Enjoy. to watch you kissing what a way to start the day yeah i love to watch you